Hebrews chapter 8, your Bible's open, uh, starting with verse 1. I'll just read uh, verse 1 through 6, then we'll pick it up a little bit later in the second portion. Starting verse 1, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also has something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he said, uh, when, uh, when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Let's pray again. Father, we pray your blessing on your word. Uh, Lord, I pray you would anoint this time. Anoint me to preach and teach what you have wanted to convey to your people Remove me again, as it were, from the equation that they might hear from you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Aren't you glad that Jesus has ascended to heaven? Aren't you glad he's never going to be on the cross ever again? Aren't you glad that we actually have a perfect priest? There's a lot of men that have served as priests down through the ages that have not been perfect. Not a single one. Not one. But Jesus is perfect. And God said, I sent my only begotten son, not only to save, but after he saved, to gather together the people of God and to be what? Our king and our priest. He's everything to us, isn't he? He's our savior. He's our priest. He's our king. He's our teacher. You know, if there was no pastors and no teachers, you'd still have teachers because you'd have the Holy Spirit and you'd have the word of God. Now, don't get me wrong. God has ordained the office of pastoring and teaching and, and then the past, the priesthood, and all those things were given by God for specific reasons. But Jesus is above all that. The head of this church is not me. It's Jesus. Because I make mistakes, but he makes no mistakes. And that's why we actually have his word. Uh, you know, what, what, what exactly are the fundamentals? That you're holding it in your hand the whole counsel of God. And so when Jesus ascended to the heavens, he came, uh, well, he'd already risen from the dead, but he sits down at the right hand of the Father to lead the church, among other things. Now, someday he'll receive honor and glory, and of course he already is there. But until that day comes, right now he's presiding over the body of Christ. He's up there, he's presiding over the whole church, not just here in Richmond, but in North Korea and in China, and in Africa, and in Mexico, and in the Pacific, and all over the world. He's presiding over, his throne is high above all the churches, all the languages, all the nations, every tribe, every tongue. So we have here, if you're taking notes, what we're going to look at today, this better covenant, which I've titled our mediator of a better covenant. Uh, You know that we've been talking about the fact that that this book, Hebrews, was written primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to a Jewish audience that had come to faith in Christ. So they had a lot of Jewish roots. They had a lot of law in them. They had a lot of understanding of the law. And so the writer of Hebrews is breaking down little by little all of the misconceptions that they might have, but also not just misconceptions, new things that were revealed in Jesus. Because some things were not misconceptions, Uh, You might have had limited understanding of Melchizedek, but then Jesus reveals the whole picture. Amen? So it wasn't necessarily always misinformation. Sometimes it was just limited information. You only had this much view, and the view got much wider when Jesus dawns on the scene. And then even after he goes back to heaven, you have a book like Hebrews, which had never been written, and God gives the writer, whether that's Paul, whether that's Luke, insights to explain, say, hey, hey, just so you understand, this is what I'm doing. 
This is what these things in the law were portraying. This is what was being foreshadowed. But this is what is fulfilled in Jesus. And so a lot of unsaved people around the world, they don't even know they need a mediator, do they? They think they need a lawyer when there's you know, divorce or strife or you know, something my neighbor's tree fell on the house. They need, they need a, maybe some kind of attorney. But they don't know they need a mediator. And many people don't know they need a covenant. And not just any covenant, a better covenant. And Jesus came because he knows what we need before we know we need it. Amen? Oh, that's always the case. He knew I needed salvation before I knew I needed salvation. Going along, living life, enjoying it. He says, no, no, you need me. You need a better covenant. You need this new covenant, which we'll be looking at here this morning. If you're taking notes, first thing I want to look at uh, with you, just two things this morning. The first is his throne and sanctuary, which is found in these first six verses that we looked at. It says, uh, now the main point of the things. Now, this is important because there are a lot of points being made here. And actually, it's kind of interesting that of all the things, this is where the writer says, now the main point. Because we've been looking at, uh, we're up to the eighth chapter. We've had seven chapters worth of points. And it's been kind of complex. And I told you uh, that Hebrews is, at, at, at times, College-level 400 course, not 101 course. It's, a, it's actually, you've got to like really be dialed in to be following, all right, what exactly is the writer saying here? What is the Lord trying to convey? But it says, so the main point here, uh, which is only about the midway point in the writer expressing and explaining the priestly ministry of Christ, which kind of starts back at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. So he's only about the midway point here of explaining the priestly ministry of Christ versus the priestly ministry under the law because they're not the same. Christ's priestly ministry is not the same as the Levitical. He's not even from the tribe of Levi, as we've established. He's from the tribe of Judah. And he's building off the divine precedent of Melchizedek here, because we just finished. Melchizedek's mentioned a few times there in chapter 7. He's building off the precedent of Melchizedek, who was back there in the time of Abraham, the king of Salem, but also the high priest of Salem. And the uniqueness of Melchizedek's ministry is very unique. Wouldn't you agree? Very unique. It was a priest unto God with no law given yet, no priesthood given yet. Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek being both outside the constraints of the law and the Levitical priesthood, but like Melchizedek, simultaneously both a king and a priest and outside the tribe of Levi, all of which would be against the law of Moses. But again, God gave the law and Jesus predates the law as did Melchizedek. And Jesus being of the divine order of Melchizedek, but even more unique than Melchizedek, and superior to Melchizedek, unless Melchizedek was a Christophany. What was that? Once again, this is all, this is all review, folks. Uh, uh, Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So you have the Bethlehem virgin birth. Jesus is physically on the earth. Jesus absolutely appears at times in the Old Testament before his virgin birth, he comes at different times, you know, for Samson's parents, for example, to, Mo, uh, to uh, Abraham before he goes on, before the two angels go on to Sodom. We looked at these different things. But, uh, it, you know, some people believe Melchizedek, that is a Christophany. I personally don't. I, I think it really was a man that God used as a Canaanite king and priest. But I don't have any problem with those that, that see it that way because theologically there's, there's enough there that you could make that case. But nevertheless, Jesus is superior to Melchizedek in the sense that Jesus did things, revealed things that were never even revealed in the life of Melchizedek at all. But he's of the same order. He's not of the tribe of Judah. I mean, not of the tribe of Levi. He's not a Levitical priesthood. He has that title of a priest forever, which was also ascribed to Melchizedek in the book of Psalms. And in this opening to chapter 8, the writer is laying out the heavenly realm 
and the ministry occupied by Christ alone, specifically here in verse 1 and 2, uh, as he lays out kind of this scene up in heaven that we can kind of, kind of see in our minds as best we can understand. But nobody but Jesus Christ has the prerequis- prerequisite of sinless perfection, the blessing of God the Father, the access to heaven. I mean, none of us can just, Jesus, as he ascended, he just ascended up into heaven, didn't he? Try doing that. <laughs> Try just ascending up to the top of a building in Richmond. Jesus did that. He just said, my ministry's done. And, he, and the angel's like, why are you all staring around? What, you've never seen anything like this before? Well, yeah, we've never seen anything like this before, right? So Jesus has the power and authority to ascend up to heaven. He has the holiness required to serve as king and priest. And all this is for us. Turn over to Romans 5 for a second if you still have your place there. Romans chapter 5. Now, Jesus has the access based on his own authority to ascend directly to the throne. Just ascend right up to the throne, sit down at the right hand of God. We'll look at that in just a second. But we, our access is dependent upon his access. Does that make sense? Our access is dependent upon his access. You ever have, um, you ever have only one key, and after you get tired of passing it around, you're like, that's it. I'm going to Home Depot or Lowe's. Sticking that thing in that little machine. Isn't it great? That little thing, just, you sit there and watch it. How many do you want? Eight. Yeah, it just makes eight. I want a blue one. I want a pink one. You know, all these different things. It can do that. It used to, used, uh, in the old days, there used to be some dude that would be behind a counter and do all this stuff. And it, but, uh, but the point is, one key has all the access. Everything else is just a copy of it. Jesus is the key with all the access. Everything else is just a subsequent. We, we're, he's giving us a key based on him being the key. So look at Romans chapter 5 together. Starting verse 1, therefore, having been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus didn't get peace with God. He, he always was God. But we had to, this is something we had to receive, just like this new covenant, this better covenant. It's something we have to receive. Jesus already had it. Through him, in other words, again, he's the key. He's the doorway. Through him, also, we have access. There it is. Access by faith into his grace, which we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory. We stop right there. We actually can come into the throne room of God by faith, through grace, and the access is provided by him. But we're seeing what that actually looks like back in Hebrews chapter 8. So go back to Hebrews chapter 8. We're seeing exactly where in our prayer life we're entering in to this throne room, if you will, where Jesus is literally seated. This isn't a figurative thing. What he's documenting here is actually the picture of the scene in heaven. We have such a high priest, verse 1, who is seated. This isn't a metaphor. This is actually Jesus is literally seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. All the other tabernacles and temples were actually built by men. And the original tabernacle was built by Moses and the children of Israel there in the wilderness and on through the temple. The first temple was Solomon, the the next temple was Zerubbabel coming back, and then Herod the Great uh, building the temple that was there at the time of Christ. No one but Jesus has the authority, the access, the holiness to preside over this throne and over this sanctuary. Now, in verses 1 through 6, Christ is described with four distinct titles. Whether you saw them or not, uh, we read them together. You may or may not have noticed them. There's four in just these ver- uh, first six verses. One is high priest in verse 1. Two is minister. Jesus is our good shepherd, our pastor, our minister, our priest. He's all of these things. But here the title is minister in verse 2. Verse 3 is called the one, capital one, 
the one. Not, that's not the bank. But anyway, uh, you know, that just came out that way. But anyway, one, capital O-N-E. And then verse 6, mediator. He's standing. You saw the picture I had, the graphic I had. He's the mediator between life and death, between God the Father and pulling us over the line, pulling us over the pit, pulling us into he's the mediator of everlasting life. He's the mediator of a better covenant. But we see here in an opening picture of this opening picture of Jesus sitting at the right hand, and it, it, the word uses majesty. Now, when it says he's sitting at the right hand of majesty, if he's at the right hand of majesty, this is another way of saying he's sitting at the right hand of God. God in all his majesty. God in all his glory. God never left the throne. He sent his only begotten son down to die, to rise, and come back and sit at the right hand of the Father. Now, we know this is true. This is a really well-taught thing in Scripture. In Psalm 110.1, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And that's re-quoted by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1. You, go, you can go back to Hebrews 1, verse 13. Psalm uh, 110.1 is quoted in this same book of Hebrews back in chapter 1. Jesus himself, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus himself quoted Psalm 110.1, referring to himself. And he forewarned, remember he stood before Pilate. He stood before Pilate, before Pilate washed his hands, as if you could do such a thing of the whole thing. But, uh, but he stood before Pilate, and he told Pilate that Jesus himself, he would be at the right hand of the Father. He said, I will be at the right hand of power. It's either good news or bad news that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, depending on which person you are and what you've done with the gospel. Did you hear me on that? It's either good news or bad news that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, because if he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in your favor, it's good news. If he's sitting at the right hand of the Father as your judge, well, that would be bad news. It's depending on what we've done. But speaking to Pilate, Listen to what he says to Pilate, <clears throat> Matthew 26, 64. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is basically saying, whether you're lost or saved, you will know without a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am of the Father when you see me in power sitting at his right hand. Mark recorded that as Jesus ascended back into heaven, in Mark 16, 19, so that after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Mark, Mark says, that's how it went. As soon as he was up, he was reseated at the right hand of the Father. Peter preached this same glorious view of Christ and the Father on the day of Pentecost. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. Peter speaks of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And again, he says the same thing in front of the Jewish council in Acts chapter 5. He tells them Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Stephen, when he was being stoned, he saw it. He actually saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, not only on the throne, but actually stand up from the throne. While he was killed, looking up, he looked at Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Stephen recorded it in his dying words. The Apostle Paul writes about this same heavenly view in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Also, he writes about in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 3, the Apostle Peter, who also preached on it, as I mentioned twice in the book of Acts, writes about it again in 1 Peter 3. Do you think this is important to God? God wants the church to know Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this is the third time that Hebrews, I mentioned chapter 1, has referenced Christ seated at the, right hand of God, uh, at the right hand of God. It's mentioned two more times in chapter 10 and chapter 12 in the remainder of the book. So God wants it abundantly clear that although Jesus is omnipresent, Jesus is in this room, 
He, he's, watching, he's watching me. He's saying, did you preach it the way it's true to the word? I'll have to give an account of everything I say. So will you, by the way. Everything you say, everything you think. Jesus is present. If you're saved, he's in your heart. He's omnipresent. He's with churches in Brazil right now. He's with churches in Russia right now. He's all over the world. He's omnipresent, but he's also seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And the writers of the Bible are saying, even though Jesus is everywhere, he's specifically somewhere. Does that make sense? He's everywhere, and yet he's specifically, the writers want you to know, he's seated on the throne, yet his spirit is all throughout the universe. Every edge of the universe, Jesus is there, and yet he literally, if you want to see where his hands and the nail prints, he's seated at the throne, right hand of the Father. And why all this is so important, I can get an inkling, but some of it I won't know until we get to heaven. God wants us to understand, this is where my son is seated. That's the vision Stephen saw with those dying breaths. He could have seen anything, but he saw him at the right hand of the Father. His glorified and risen body king and priest there on the throne in that sanctuary. And his, uh, his, being seated, his being seated is significant in two aspects. Well, probably more than two, but at least two that we'll look at. For one, that's what kings do. Kings sit on a throne. Amen? That's what kings do. They sit on a throne which is evidence of their power and their absolute authority. And Jesus sitting on the throne is evidence of his power in his absolute authority, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and ruler of all. But he's also a high priest. The high priest of the people of God, both the saved from the, the Jewish community and the saved from the Gentile community. We're all one as the people of God. And as his throne is in the heavens, so is his sanctuary is in the heavens. He resides in the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple not built with the hands of men. No man has ever put a hammer or a tool to the heavenly sanctuary. God spoke it into existence or, or whatever. He fashioned it with his own hands. We don't even know how he made the sanctuary of heaven, but we know we had nothing to do with it. We didn't touch it. We, we mankind, has been part of the previous temples and tabernacles, but not the one that Jesus is seated in right now. He resides in his heavenly tabernacle. Now understand, there was no place in the earthly temples for the high priest to sit. Did you know that? When they went into the holy place, there was not a seat for them in there. There was no place for them to sit in the holy place or in the holy of holies where only the priest could go once a year uh, at Yom Kippur, but there was no place for them to sit. Why? Because the service, the gifts, the sacrifices were continual. They were in there to serve the Lord. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. We see there, that was their role, to offer gifts and sacrifices, not to sit down, but to offer the gifts and sacrifices. They had to continually bring them because the people's sins never stopped. Our failures never stopped. They were continually serving God, serving, coming in. That's what the high priest, there was not a sit-down, there was not a recliner in there or a sit-down throne, none of which would be authorized for them. So there was no seat for them. But Jesus, the one that met all the requirements, he had already offered himself once and for all. Jesus doesn't need to offer any more sacrifices. He offered Everything needed to be offered when he offered his blood. Amen? There was no more sacrifice. As his high priest, it was a one-time offering, if you will, of himself. He was the lamb and the priest and the sacrifice. The high priest, he was also the Passover lamb. He was all of it. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, after he'd given himself as an offering, he did not stay on earth and take over the earthly priesthood. He, remember, he twice had turned over the tables and, and the temple to tell them, you guys are way off base. right? Remember, he, all the money changers, he cleared out, cleared out the temple, and they, they, they were just incensed by it all. But Jesus could have rightly strolled out of the grave, strolled right into the temple and said, everyone out, 
I'm the high priest and the king, but he didn't do that. He ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly sanctuary. He did not stay and take over the earthly priesthood. In verse 4 it says, For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Again, he is not, he's the giver of the law. He's filled it up. He, he's of the order of Melchizedek. He's not of the tribe of Levi. He's not part of that dispensation, that system, in the sense that those priests were imperfect. They were always representing the blood sacrifices. Jesus himself, no, I am the sacrifice. I'm above all these sacrifices. Caiaphas, the Levitical he was of the Levitical priesthood, he remained the priest even after, G you know, Peter and them had to go before Caiaphas after Jesus ascended. So the priesthood continued until the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., then there was no temple, which Jesus told that there wouldn't be a temple. He's the one that said that it would be destroyed, that it would be gone. The earthly priesthood was given by God for the purposes of God, but it was far inferior to the high priest of Jesus Christ. Amen? It was given for good reasons. It was given for specific reasons. But it was inferior to our eternal high priest. Look at verse 5, uh, who serve as a copy and shadow all these things that the priesthood, the temple, the tabernacle, all of the articles within it, they serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed. Moses was given a blueprint that came down from God to be a type, to be a model, to be a picture of what God had in the heavenly realm. All these things were given to Israel on the earth. They were little copies, if you will, and shadows of the temple of heaven and of Christ and the offering of himself and him being the high priest. And the glory that, even when the glory filled the temple on earth, it was a picture of the glory that fills the heavenlies. Remember, you'd see sometimes and said, and the glory filled the temple? That's a picture of what is in heaven. The glory is always there. It's, it's the majesty that's mentioned here. And God alone it fills that. Uh, but in fact, as I mentioned, there's no place for the high priest to sit in the Holy of Holies. Think about the temple in Jesus' time. Think about the temple to Solomon. There was no place for the high priest to sit. And yet, there was actually a seat there. Can you think of one? The mercy seat. There's a place for God to sit, but not the priest. Isn't that interesting? The human priest had no seat in the Holy of Holies, but God had a seat. It was called the mercy seat. It had the cherub in it rested right above the Ark of the Covenant. God could come sit, but not the high priest. God had a seat. The priest did not. But Jesus is different. He's the priest that gets the seat. He's sitting on the throne, both in heaven, but also in the sanctuary. God alone would rest there. And as I mentioned, he'd fill the temple there with his glory. But in the heavenly temple... Jesus is both king and priest, so his throne accommodates both his titles, king and priest. And while the Ark of the Covenant spoke of the covenant to Israel, Jesus, look at verse 6, but now has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which, is which uh, was established on better promises. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And as our high priest he doesn't need to offer any more sacrifices. He has the testimony of a sacrifice for all eternity. We'll see those nail-pierced hands and feet. But he can, you know how he mediates for us? He talks to his father right beside him. Isn't that great? He's seated there. Tim, it's Tim again. <laughs> again? Yeah, again. He wants to know... Uh, <laughs> But you too, whatever your name is, it's your name again. He's seated right beside, he, he has, him and the Father are talking about you, about this church, about the church, about the kingdom of God, about what God's doing around the world, what he's doing in the nation. When you're praying, you're talking, Jesus is your mediator. You have the Spirit of Christ living in you, his, that key that he gave you, that after his key, saying, you can talk to me. I am at the right hand of the Father. My Father owns all things. I, I'll put in the word. that you Now, if you're asking for dumb things that are according to the flesh, that gets rejected. Just pushed right back down. But if it's of 
the right nature and say, Lord, I'm in humility, I'm just asking you to give me boldness to share my faith. Those are the kind of things that, yeah, that, that we can do, that we will do. It's a throne of power, but it's also a throne of mediation for us. Let's take a look at the second and last point this morning. We have his throne and his sanctuary, but also his covenant mercy. Pick it up with me in verse 7. Uh, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Boy, that's, a, that's, that's my prayer revival. Our, our nation, would, we would be the people of God. And instead of saying on our dollar bill, and God we trust, which is so not true, it would actually be true. Back to verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. That's the way God looks at just the mess of humanity, lawlessness, sin, just gushing out. And we see it all the time on the TV and the airways and everything else, verse 13. And he, in that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The first covenant was beautiful. I love, I'm in the Old Testament right now. I'm in, I'm in the book of 1 Samuel. I've been going through the whole New, Old Testament. The first covenant is beautiful compared to the, everything that the world was when God sent down uh, the law and the covenant to Abraham. It was glorious. And by the time Solomon built the temple, if Israel had stayed true to God, what a light and a witness it might have been for 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years, but it never lasted that long. Why? Because we're all sinners and we fail pretty quickly. But the new covenant was always showing us we couldn't ever measure up. Only God kept his end of the deal. Israel could never keep their end of the deal. He, that's what he said. They kept walking away from me. That's why he sent judges. He sent prophets. He sent kings. Israel again and again violated the covenant and turned away both collectively and individually. There was nobody, there's none righteous, no, not one, as the book of Isaiah says. E everyone failed the first covenant. Every God is the only one that kept the first covenant, amen? Everyone on the other side missed it. But we all needed a new covenant, not just Israel. All of us needed a new covenant. Remember, God made a covenant even before the law, there was the sign of the rainbow. Yesterday, I got out of my hotel room. I was headed over to, to, to share at the men's conference. I walk out, and there was a rainbow, and there was no rain. And I was like, to me, when I see that, I don't think of today's nonsense. When I see that, I think of, yes, God made a covenant with the world to never flood it completely. But I know there's judgment in that statement, too, because someday it'll be destroyed by fire. And I look at that, but, I, but I, when I see a rainbow, I just think God's talking, saying, remember everything in my word is faithful and true. Israel was given a great and glorious covenant, but needed the new covenant that Christ would bring. Jews, Gentiles, those before, those during, those after the law, all need this new covenant. The covenant of the law is, it says if the first law had been faultless, verse 7, well, it wasn't faultless. God's part is flawless and faultless, but it, it still did its work. It, it wasn't fruitless. Because the Bible says the law is our tutor bringing us to Christ. When we realize, I cannot keep these commandments. They're too hard. You're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. You're going to need an inward dwelling from God. You're going to need a pardon from God himself. It wasn't fruitless, though, in a sense, on the 
side of the people, it wasn't faultless. God's side, of course, it was. And it demonstrated that nobody could keep its perfection. But it underscored the need for a flawless substitute, enter Jesus. Amen? We needed a flawless substitute who could keep the law. Jesus didn't violate one single element of law or anything, any sin. He was flawless and sinless, as Hebrews itself expresses back in uh, chapter 4 and other passages as well. Um, Someone had to cover the sins that we could never, ever cover. And the Old Testament foresaw a need for a Savior and a Messiah. Think Psalm 22, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 53. It foresaw and foretold this need for a new covenant. The old would serve its purpose, but it would give way to the new. It would serve its purpose, but it would give way to the new. And the writer quotes from the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, to make clear that the doctrine of the new covenant is indeed new territory to understand and appreciate, but not new, and that it was never mentioned before. And here's why. Because if you look at the fact that we've talked about Melchizedek, it might be new information, but it wasn't that God had never said anything related to this. The priesthood of Melchizedek, as I've said before, was hiding in plain sight. It was hiding in plain sight. It was clear that God had had Abraham present himself and his tithe and him just bow down and worship at the feet of Melchizedek. That was hiding in plain sight. That was before Levi was ever born. Aaron was ever priest. The covenant of the law was rejected time and time again by Israel. And why? Because the inward issues of the heart are often they're, they're manifest in outward rebellion, right? What starts inside eventually is done on the outside with our life. But even when they kept a good look, even when Israel was on their best time, uh, still, um, even when Jesus came, remember he's talking to the Pharisees, he's talking to the religious leaders, even when they were looking good on the outward, Jesus said, you got all the ceremonial stuff, but inside you is full of dead men's bones. This covenant that you're trying to keep is not going to keep you. Many hearts were still dark. This promise, this promised work to come that came with Jesus' coming was an inward work, a promise to do an inward. Look back at verse 10. I will put my laws in their mind and write, my, and write on their hearts. This is an inward work. God says, I'm going to do so. I'm going to reach in and take out the old and put in the new in our soul. That's why we talk about Jesus saves souls. Doctors save limbs. Jesus saves souls. He does an inward work, not just an outward work, an inward work. To be born again is not an outward law or an exterior thing. It happens as an inward work where the commands of God are written on our hearts by the love of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we can actually say, after salvation, I love the commands of God, and you can mean it and not even understand how you mean it because the Holy Spirit has changed your thinking. The mind has been changed. The heart has been changed. I can literally say, I now love the laws of God. Before I got saved at the age of 26, I did not really like the laws of God. I tried to run from them. But when they're written on my heart, now I see them as beautiful. I see, and a lot of people would probably say, yeah, I, pre- well, I would prefer no one steals from me. I would prefer so no, no one murders me. But they kind of are okay with lying or adultery or this, or, you know, uh, idolatry. But once you get saved, God, all the law seems beautiful now. It's an inward work. Now, I know this was written and requoted to Israel and understand uh, this passage, this whole passage in your Bible, probably italics. It was written at the outset to Israel, and it's requoted to Israel even here because there are men, over the, most of the readers were Jewish believers in Jesus that had um, come to faith. But even though it was written first to Israel, remember Jesus came first to the lost house of Israel himself, didn't he? He said, I've come first to the lost house of Israel. 
So you would say, well, d- does this really apply to us? I'm not Jewish. I'm not, of the, I'm not Israeli. I'm not a, a descendant of Abraham or Moses or anybody in the Jewish realm. I mean, does this apply to me? Yes, because Paul later explains in the book of Romans, we are grafted in to Israel. We're the wild branch that's grafted in. So yes, it applies to us too. As Gentiles, we are grafted in to the covenant. We're, that's why we're all called the sons and daughters of Abraham, the father of faith. We're grafted in through this same work of Jesus coming to be our priest and our king. This new covenant relationship, this knowing God personally and intimately, where as he ripped the veil of the temple, we have access now, as only the high priest did. Uh, we're, we're not afar off. We don't even need a temple building because Jesus is residing in the heaven of heavens, in the sanctuary not made by man. We don't need the temple building. And as I said before, in the millennial reign of Christ, God will rebuild for some different purposes that we don't have time to get into today. But Jesus also resides in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of the Father and the Son. And the Spirit illuminates the commandments for us now under this new covenant strengthens our resolve that we would not have on our own, deepens our relationship. In verse 11, it said, all will know the Lord. We know the Lord now, amen? We know the Lord personally. I mean, no atheist can convince me that I don't know Jesus. They can tell me all day long that I am crazy and I might as well believe in the tooth fairy. Fine. I don't know the tooth fairy, but I know Jesus. I've watched the movie, but I don't know any of these mythical characters, but I know Jesus because I know how I was before he changed me. I know exactly how I was before he changed me. And nobody could have done the work that's an inward work. And once you know you've been saved, you know you've been saved. Try, try someone telling you, you, you you did not have breakfast this morning when you know you did. No, I know I did. I still have the egg stain right on my shirt. I have the proof that I had it. I don't, but I've done that before too. Every born again believer in the family of God, it says, no one will need to teach his neighbor from the least. They will know the Lord, for I'll be merciful. We will we'll know that the Holy Spirit is teaching us, instructing us, reminding us, pulling us back in line, all of these things, all these truths that the Holy Spirit speaks directly to us and says, no, that's not for you anymore. This is for you. And I don't really want, oh, I'm too tired to read the word. And the Holy Spirit says, it'll give you strength to read the word. And you listen to, you don't even need your neighbor who say, you should read the word. No, the Holy Spirit's right there with you. You don't need a priest telling you, you need to do this, you need to do this. You have the Holy Spirit reminding you, this is the new covenant. It's actually, it's been given to the whole church collectively, but it's given to us personally. Amen. Personally, each person will know the Lord there in verse 11. They will know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. And that's true. In the church, you know, it doesn't matter if you're brand new saved or been saved 30 years. Once you're saved, you have a relationship with Jesus. I, I, I was telling the guys yesterday, um, I had another, uh, another pastor I follow on Twitter. Uh, he made a fun, I, I'm going to paraphrase this, but he said, he goes, new Christians are the best. He said, they love Jesus like crazy. They witness to everybody. They still have unsafe friends they can get to church, and they haven't become weird yet. Uh, so, you know, it's like, and I knew exactly what he was saying because, you know, well, the longer people get saved, they get these pet things that they, that they only, when you get around them, you know it's coming. You know, it's their pet little thing that this is, this is what I, and I yeah, I'm saved, I have joy, but, but I, but I, wanna, I really want to zero in on this right here. And, you know, but, but new believers are just like, come to Jesus. He'll forgive you of your sin. You won't have to go to the clubs anymore, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, and then after a while, people have these pet little doctrine things. And Anyway, I, kinda, I totally know what he meant. But uh, it's great because once you're saved, you didn't have the desire to tell your friends about Jesus. But once you receive the new covenant, you have a new desire, a new thirst, a new intention, a new purpose. What we're doing now and what I'm doing, we're encouraging, uh, even though it says 
uh, know his neighbor. Should, won't, he won't need the neighbor to tell the neighbor, you need to know the Lord because each one will know the Lord. Now, this has actually happened in the work of Christ already. But the larger work is when all the body of Christ is gathered and we all are sinless at that time. So you, this is, has, a, it has a present fulfillment and a future fulfillment. I've talked about before how God, with prophecy, it kind of goes like this, and it gets larger and larger until, until it reaches its full fulfillment. Where there, If you look at this in the long term, imagine when we are all in eternity together, and we all have all the knowledge of God in our hearts. It, it's, it's, this same passage will still hold true it's exponentially a different ballgame. Does that make sense to you? But now, in this room, I don't, if you're saved, I already don't need to say, and I don't need to say to my wife, honey, you need to get saved. She's already saved. Now we can just encourage one another. Now in heaven, we'll have a whole different level of understanding that not only will we say, you don't need to get saved, but we also will be able to communicate. We'll know the Lord at a level we've never understood before. So I'm just trying to say this as a present fulfillment, but a far greater future fulfillment when Israel and, the, and all Gentiles are merged into the family of God for all eternity. Understand that the covenant is much broader, much more expansive than, than we can really even comprehend. But even what we're doing today, we're encouraging one another and strengthening one another by reminding each other of these truths. But we have already believed them. Like even things I believe when I hear other pastors preach it, I, I don't... I don't say, I already know that. I say, yes. Did you know the whole Bible, I'm going to do a whole message on this. The whole Bible ends with this word, amen. I'm going to do an entire teaching on the word amen because it means so much to God. So when you hear a great teaching, you're driving down the road, and you're like, you don't say, I already know that, I'm turning the channel. No, you turn it up. You're like, let me hear more of this because your spirit's saying amen, amen, amen. That's what's happening in us here. And so let me wrap this up with this. Um, what's taking place here in these last few verses, verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins, and their lawless deeds. I'll remember them no more. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't remember all your sins prior to salvation? Yeah. I remember them. I wish I could forget some of them, but he doesn't. Isn't that great? He's, I'm not going to remember your lawlessness anymore. Someday, collectively, the whole family, but individually, even right now. And the epicenter of what Christ has provided in this new covenant is this word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. I forgive you. I forgive you. Total forgiveness. That's the epicenter of the whole thing. In Romans 4, 7, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are forgiven. Covered. Remember, Jesus is the sacrifice and the priest. He's both. At the mercy seat, the blood was there. But he's the blood sacrifice, but he's also the one administering and ministering in the sanctuary. Jesus said to rejoice because our names are written in heaven. That's what we rejoice. We rejoice in forgiveness. Not, we don't rejoice because, hey, we're better than other people. We're not. We're just sinners saved by grace. And it's all due to his grace and his mercy, it says right there, uh, I will be merciful. Merciful. Matchless grace. The old covenant, verse 13, we'll wrap it up here, and he says the old covenant has been made, the first has been made obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish when. This is, again, speaks to the eternal nature. And you can see even in that verse a present state and a future state even mentioned, and a transition state all at the same time. Present, transitioning, and future all stated in that same passage. But the old covenant has become obsolete because Jesus alone has kept the law that no one else ever could. He broke it down in the sense that he says, I'm the only one that's kept it. Now, instead of you putting your trust in the law, you're putting your trust in me, the lawgiver, but really the grace giver, our Savior our sacrifice. He's covered us with his perfection and now he's our priest and our king and he's worthy of all. Amen? Amen. All. Let's pray. Father, we just bow before you. Even some of these concepts, Lord, are, 
are really hard for our feeble minds to understand because it's written from the very Spirit of God, Lord. It, it, these things, they, they transcend our understanding. But, Lord, we can understand enough. We can understand enough to see that the epicenter of your mercy and forgiveness is loud and clear, that you desire to take lawless people and convert them by your grace if they would only believe and turn to you and ask for mercy. And, Lord, that's what we've done if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've, we've come to you by just, Lord, saying, be merciful to me. Cleanse and forgive me. We thank you, Lord, that if you have saved us, we do have a new desire. We do have a new thirst, a new taste for spiritual things, a desire to no longer live in sin, but to live in obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, and the peace and the freedom that comes through doing your will. And, Lord, it's my prayer that each and every person here not only know you, but know you deeper day by day. And, Lord, as we come to a, an end here, Lord, I just... I, Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior today, they would come and call upon your name. With our heads bowed, is there is anyone here that say, I know this message was mostly to believers. Most of this book is. Most of Hebrews is written is primarily to believers to fortify their faith, to strengthen what they know is true, and to be that much more confident in it. But at the same time, if you've never experienced the mercy of Jesus, your forgiveness of sins, to know that you... You're forgiven. You don't have to live in the past. You don't have to wonder, will I go to hell or will I go to heaven? But you can know you are saved by grace. If that's you, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. It's, it's your, God gives you a choice. He will not force you to go to heaven. I, would, I don't know why anyone would not want to because our life is but a vapor. I don't know why anybody would want to go to eternity in hell, but... God gives us a choice, amen? He says, I sent my son so you don't have to go there. I told you when I was bivocational, still in the business world, I used to have a coworker every Monday. He'd say, did you send anyone to hell this weekend? And I would tell him, I cannot send them there. I can only tell them not to go there. Anyone at all. For all of us, I pray that this week, I would ask you to do something if you want to, you don't have to, but it's just a suggestion. Read Romans chapter 5 all this coming week. Romans chapter 5. I just only read the first couple of verses, but five days in Romans 5, and then we'll close with our 6 a.m. prayer on, on Friday. But just read through Romans 5. It's only like 21 verses. You read like three verses a day. Meditate on it. There's some really great stuff in Romans 5 that explains some of what's here, and you'll see what I mean. You can actually cross-reference it with Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, but just the atoning work and what God done and, and the access he's given us. So just a suggestion to you. Uh, why don't you stand as we close in song?